Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 90 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. My live Caro Pop conversation with two-time Oscar-nominated actor Michael Shannon takes place July 31st at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Go to evansonspace.com for tickets and information. Our Caro Pop guest this week is the little sister age-wise and the middle sister voice-wise in one of the most sublime, good-humored vocal trios ever, Suzzy Roach of The Roaches. I first saw The Roaches open for Randy Newman in Philadelphia in the spring of 1983, and I was blown away from the moment the three sisters launched into the impossibly beautiful harmonies of Losing True. That song still puts a lump in my throat. Maggie, the oldest and deepest voiced Roach, and Terry, the middle sister with the highest voice, performed and recorded together in the early 70s. The duo sang on Paul Simon's There Goes Ryman Simon. Was a sunny day. Not a cloud was in the sky. Not a negative word was heard from the people's passing their own album, Seductive Reasoning, in 1975. But when Suzzy joined, she became the glue, both musically and personality-wise, and the trio known as the Roaches was born. They arranged their own version of Handel's The Hallelujah Chorus and sang it on Street Corners and Saturday Night Live. They signed with Warner Brothers and Robert Fripp produced their first and third albums. Was Suzzy concerned that Fripp might make the Roaches sound like King Crimson? He turned out to be a brilliant, sympathetic choice, putting their harmonies front and center and embellishing their lush acoustic guitars with his own fluid solos. Maggie and Terry and Suzzy introduced themselves wittily on the first song of the Roach's 1979 self-titled debut. We are Maggie and Terry and Suzzy. Then broke hearts with the gorgeous The Hammond Song. If you go down to Hammond, you'll never come back. Roy Halley, who produced Simon and Garfunkel and Paul Simon, brought a more traditional rock backing to the second Roach's album, Nerds, the first of many record label efforts to try to make these harmonizing sisters sound more commercial and current. Nerds contains what became a Roach's standard, Maggie's One Season, as well as Suzzy and Terry's comical envisioning of the death of Suzzy Roach. What prompted that one? The Roaches sounded like the Roaches again on the Fripp-produced Keep On Doing, but things got synthy and very 80s sounding on 1985's Another World. Were the Roaches keen on this change of direction? In 1988, Suzzy, who studied acting in college, was a standout as the Amy Irving character's best friend in Joan Michelin Silver's romantic comedy, Crossing Delancey. How did that role come about? What did Steven Spielberg say about her, and did she want to act more after that? Have you ever been in an isolation tank? No. Forget the lighting, forget the fancy locker rooms, forget the hair dryers. Just give me scrupulous clean. Oh, with all the disease going around today, how could I relax if I'm imagining all sorts of sick amoeba swimming into my ears? <laughs> Aren't you sitting at the bar when we came in? Yes. Did you have any dinner? To tell you the truth, I went way over my calorie limit on the margaritas. Speak from 1989 was another Strong Roaches album, with the sisters singing about how all their hype and TV appearances, including one on The Tonight Show, amounted to a big nothing. Dove from 1992 continued their trend of excellence without big sales. After 1995's Can We Go Home Now, the group took a break before releasing and touring behind its final album, 2007's Moonswept. Behind the moon. In between 
Scorsese recorded a couple of solo albums, and she and Maggie recorded two other albums together, including Zero Church, in which they set other people's prayers to music. God bless the artists and keep them safe. Maggie Roach died from breast cancer in 2017 at age 65. Praise the Creator and those who create. At the time, Suzy remembered her as too sensitive and shy for this world. Suzy expounds on these thoughts here and digs deeper into the sisters' magical blend of voices and sometimes difficult dynamics. Now Suzy's daughter, Lucy Wainwright Roach, whose father is singer-songwriter Loudon Wainwright III, is pursuing her own musical career. Suzy and Lucy have recorded three albums together, including I Can Still Hear You from 2020. How much of Suzy's singing in her life has been with family members? Speaking from her New York City home, Suzy is every bit as thoughtful and funny as you'd expect. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Suzy Roach. I guess the shit never hit the fan because you're still there. <laughs> well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> the shit has hit the fan several times, but I'm still here. There you go. When did you start singing? And at what point did you sort of realize the joy of like harmonies? Oh, well, we were all um, in church choirs as kids. And so... You know, Christmas actually was one of the main, you know, singing Christmas carols and singing in church um, for all the, the big holidays. And, you know, we grew up in a Catholic school. And so there were nuns who everybody loved and they were the choir directors. And so we had a lot of harmony singing um, right from the get go. And actually, one of my f first memories ever is hearing uh, Maggie and Terry singing a song called Sacred Heart of Jesus, which I never have heard since, but hmm. Maggie was singing harmony and she had an uncanny talent for harmony singing. So it was always something that we did. Did you get joy out of it the whole time or was there a point where kind of a light bulb went off and you're like, wow, I love this? It's sort of physically pleasing you know, to sing in harmony. It's actually a physical sensation. Singing is physical. And so when you're singing with other people and you're making that harmony, it's very pleasurable. And I think to this day, I prefer singing um, with people than singing alone, even though I've learned to love to sing alone as well. If a bunch of people are singing, do you gravitate toward the harmony part versus the key melody? I think I sort of think of the harmony part as the melody. <laughs> and and that's another thing about the Roaches is that we, we didn't really feature the melody. We, we sort of had three equal uh, parts um, so that you could hear each uh, harmony part distinctly from the melody. And I think that comes from singing in a choir where they divide up the different parts, you know, so that when you're standing in your own uh, part, it seems like that's the only part. Now, I don't expect a direct figure here, but like what percentage of the singing you've done in your life has been with family members? <laughs> yeah, probably most, you know, and I think that that is very, uh, a very profound basis for my particular um, interest in singing. It's always been kind of a family thing. And maybe because I'm younger in the family, it, it's just something that um, the point of view of the family, the sort of ease of the family, all those things come into play. And and particularly with us, I, I've never really run into anyone else who who wants to put the time in to figure out the kind of arrangements that we did. I mean, you and Maggie and Terry all have distinct voices and sort of distinct ranges too, yet there's something about sisters singing that just works in a way that, I don't know, somehow you think 
people who weren't related to each other weren't like, what is that magic of the ties your voices together? Um, I don't know, but probably a lot of things. Uh, somebody once told me that siblings have similar shaped vocal cords, which would make sense since they, you know, there's usually a physical resemblance. I don't really know um, why it sounds like that, but it definitely does. There is a sound uh, when you have siblings. Yeah, I have two daughters who are turning, uh, you know, 19 and 21 now, but they 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 both love singing, and also my my older daughter has sort of a lower voice, and younger daughter is definitely a soprano. But when they sing together, they sound fantastic, and I'd be like, "Oh, you guys could be like the Roaches," you know? It's like that was that's like the 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 thing to aim for. Uh, well, don't tell them that. <laughs> <laughs> I was, it's uh, a I was, rough life. It's been a rough life. I've been, you know, uh, although it's full of, it also has been full of joy. The actual making of all the work is very, very, um, I feel very good about that. You know, what's the, what's the roughest part of it? Um, well, it life on the road is, it takes a, a toll on you and it's kind of makes you a little strange <laughs> because you're always going somewhere, leaving your home going away and coming back. And as it's as if what you just experienced didn't happen. So it, it's kind of a mind-bending experience. And also, we had to um, really give up a lot of our independence from each other in order to keep, uh, you know, the the group in intact. We had to constantly rehearse. We had to to bend to each other's wills always, you know, which was one of the great pleasures of it, too, because you're not just doing something about you. You're doing something that's creating a third thing. It's just uh, like everything else. It's got an upside and downside to it. Yeah, I would think it would be an advantage and disadvantage to doing this with sisters. Uh the advantage is that you all know each other really well. The disadvantage is that with, you know, people who aren't sisters, you could just kind of go home to your own life and say, all right, I just don't have to deal with this person for a while. And I would also think, and I'm just guessing that like when you're arguing about like some musical point, it would be hard not to bring in other family dynamics to those <laughs> arguments, right? Well, we did use a lot of dissonant notes <laughs> in our choices. I think one, one of the things that uh, we a kind of a rule that we had, not hard and fast, but we all got to pick our own notes. And so, you know, in building the harmonies, uh, we got to say, oh, I'll I'll take this note, you take, you know, and the other person says, I'll take that note. So Maggie and Terry are older than you, and they had put out an album, Seductive Reasoning, before, and they'd, they'd been singing together before you join them as as you as you sing in we you know they'd been singing together for 10 years what was the point where it was like no we're going to be a trio now and and sort of when did you know that was the right thing well i had been studying acting in college and i started coming down to the village you know whenever i had some time off from school and one day I was in school and I just quit. <laughs> I don't, I didn't even think about it. I don't know why looking back on it, it was, it was literally a spur of the moment thing. I just stood up in, in the room and said, I, I'm leaving. And I left and I walked out and I just went down into the village and we started singing Christmas carols on the street. And, you know, we worked out the arrangements like we had done since we were kids. And um, then we just went from there. There was a guy who wanted, <laughs> and this is true, he wanted us to do a tour of Ireland standing in clothing store windows and huh. standing there and singing. And so people walking by would just see us in clothing stores. I mean, that is really true, but it didn't happen. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's too bad. Well, it would have been an experience, I suppose. But it would have I given you another wait. verse in The Troubles. Exactly. Well, that's why we wrote The Troubles. But in the end, you know, the guy, I don't know why we thought that was going to work, but <laughs> he pulled the plug and, and we didn't wind up doing that. 
But that's when we kind of seriously decided to just keep going and playing in clubs and stuff like that. I mean, did you have to convince Maggie and Terry that you guys would be better as a trio? Well, no, no. It wasn't really like that. It wasn't like I joined the duo. It was kind of like they had had some rough times and kind of dissembled. And uh, I kind of swooped in. I had all this energy and I was like, let's let's do something. We can put the hat out on the street and make some money. And and uh, we did. And so and then it just kind of snowballed from there. But the roaches sound and way of operating is very different from Maggie and Terry's record that they did together. First of all, just musically, three parts is so different from two parts. And we needed, we had to be um, like a little puzzle. You know, we had three instruments and three voices and every single note had to fit with every other note because you can't really just kind of wing it with three-part harmony. Right. At what point did you first do uh, the Hallelujah Chorus? That was one of the first things that we did, because we had all learned that in high school. And we had an arrangement um, for four parts, but Maggie combined the uh, tenor and bass parts. And then from singing it on the street a million times, it got faster and faster, <laughs> which happened with things when you're singing on the street. Because we used to sing on the street and then you, you'd stand there and you put the hat out and then the police would come and tell you you had to move on. And so <laughs> we were constantly just trying to get as much done as quickly as possible. You're like we're you're introdu you're interrupting the Hallelujah chorus here. Come on, man. <laughs> oh yeah, well that was part of it because the people in the who had gra the the crowd that had gathered, you know, would uh, say, "Oh, please leave them alone and go catch some <laughs> people who are doing crimes." You know that kind of thing. Did you enjoy performing on the street? Yes, we were young. We were completely unstoppable. We were just kind of scrappy and we had a lot of nerve and then when we started going into the clubs we still maintained that and we were very unique there wasn't anybody else doing what we were doing at the time yeah, i mean aside from the fact that each of you had these distinct voices you also have these distinct personalities and that was part of the dynamic too was sort of the energy that each of you brought how would you describe kind of what each of your role was in that group, at least the public-facing part of it. I always thought of us as a train. I, I was the cow catcher <laughs> at the front of the train, and Terry was the engine, and Maggie was the caboose. And that's that's how I used to think of us, as, you know, we all definitely had different personalities and we didn't try to, you know, synthesize in that way at all. And that was part of the, the fun of it was just being and doing whatever you wanted. It was fun. You came across as the most extroverted. Maggie may be the most introverted. Is that accurate? Um, I, you know, often am mistaken for the wild and crazy one. But I'm telling you, my two sisters were way more wild and crazy than I ever was. I was in way kind of like a little scaredy cat when it came to really going wild. I was pretty responsible and, uh, you know, but I on stage I had, because I was not often playing, I was kind of standing in the middle, I kind of, had a, a certain theatricality. Um, and I saw my role as being in between the two of them, monitoring the situation, <laughs> you know, feeling the situation between them and trying to balance. I'm a Libra, so I was uh, balancing and also singing in the middle part. Right. So, sort of like the the glue, you know, 
And uh, Terry has a whole different, uh, you know, uh, wild, crazy way than playing the guitar and singing high and, you know, very dramatic. And Maggie was very still and holding down that bottom with the, the low voice. And but really, Maggie, who always came across very shy, there was nothing like being in a room alone with Maggie because she would talk your ear off and mm. she was not shy. She was crazy. She really was wild and one of the funniest people I've ever <laughs> I've ever met and just very special. You know, she had a real special quality about her writing and about herself, which made it more difficult, I think, for her to be in the world. And um, I felt very protective of her and of Terry, honestly. And that's something that continued throughout the years, too, it sounds like. Yeah, in my mind, I felt very, I, and I think it's maybe because I, I am the youngest and I grew up seeing them, I really saw them. And I think they had more um, conflicts with each other and, you know, were more forward moving for themselves. Like I was trying, always trying to keep the family together, like we were talking about before, you know. Right. When you guys started as the Roaches, did you all have sort of the same vision or similar visions of where you wanted the group to go? Um, <laughs> what what had happened to Maggie and Terry when they had their first experience with the making a record together? They were it was a few years earlier, and it was guys in record companies trying to tell them to dress differently and to, you know how to look and how to, and, and so when we started doing it together, one of the things was, no, we're going to do whatever we want. We're not going to dress like that. We're going to be however we want. And, and one of the first things that people were always saying about us was what we were wearing. You know, we wore sneakers and we wore different kind of outfits. And so we didn't want to fall into the trap uh, that the other, you know, that kind of girl with a guy band who's like a sex kitten type person, you know. Right. We weren't interested in that. So you ended up on Saturday Night Live in 1979, which was the same year as your debut album, although you didn't play anything from the debut on that show. But how did that all kind of come together? They wanted us to be on the show, I guess. Um, I think we were really popular at that point we we kind of came out of nowhere and and were very became very popular among a certain kind of person kind of an alternative thing it was before the internet before you know anything like that which is hard to even imagine now but um i don't think that the powers that be you know in the music business or whatever had any idea why that was happening with us but they inquired to have us uh, sing on, you know, Saturday Night Live. And the Johnny Carson show and the uh, David Letterman, you know, we were on all those shows. Right. <laughs> were those things enjoyable for you? No, not to me. We were out of context always there. And also on Saturday Night Live, it was right the week after somebody had got, gone on stage on the, the show and said some sort of obscenity or something. And so they, it was live and they had to scramble to fix that. And so before we started singing the hallelujah chorus, <laughs> Lauren Michaels was standing there with his arms crossed right in front of us, like staring at us, right. you know, really. And you know, <laughs> like, what, what are you talking about? You We're know? singing the hallelujah chorus. I think you're okay. Content wise. Yeah, I mean, it. it uh, although nowadays you get in trouble for that too, but um, it was never relaxed like it was on stage, you know, and in context, like the Johnny Carson show, you know, it was ridiculous. We, what were we doing there? It, it just didn't make any sense. And it didn't really help us in any way, you know. Was the Saturday Night Live experience what you were thinking of when you wrote Big Nothing? 
Um, sort of, I think maybe and that and the Johnny Carson thing and, you know, just the whole idea of, you know, we did try to stay out of the music business and the whole idea of who's famous and who's not famous and how successful and all this kind of stuff. But you can't escape it, you know, especially then when you didn't own anything, you didn't really have any rights, you know, the record companies they still own all our music, you know, and it's not like today where you have you can have control over your entire inventory. People like um, Taylor Swift or whatever, you know, they they are strong. They they own it. They they're business people. They uh, I think that's great. But I think the vast majority of musicians have been exploited by the record companies, right? Totally. Yeah. And now now it's happening with the streaming and everything. I mean, you would not believe the I was just looking at a statement, a royalty statement. I mean, you get like a percentage of a penny for this or that. You know, it's ridiculous. We're going away to Ireland, Ireland, Ireland soon, Ireland soon. Try not to get in the way of the guns, as we always do. Try not to get in the way of the guns soon. Robert Fripp produced the debut album and then also the third album, Keep On Doing, and really kind of preserved that sense of you, you know, singing acoustically and I mean playing acoustically and singing together, and then he would put these nice little lead parts in there. But how do you get connected to him and did you feel like he was a kindred spirit on those records yes we john rockwell who was a writer for the new york times told him to go down and see us robert had just signed a production deal with warner brothers and we had just signed a record deal and so john rockwell said to robert go down and hear these people maybe you could produce them so that's how we met and we <laughs> had a lot of fun with him you know again he was he seemed very reserved and you know but he he was not he was a wild and crazy i mean we were, we were all young people but he did want to record us just as we were you know right. just as we sounded and so that that record has a very unique sound there was no trepidation like oh my god he's going to make us sound like king crimson or something like that i didn't even know who he was you know, I was just like a little wise guy. I, I mean, I don't think even I don't think Maggie and Terry really knew much about his music either. Robert Criscow in Village Voice wrote of Keep On Doing, this sounds so good. I'm beginning to believe Robert Fripp was put on earth to produce the roaches. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> and then in between, you did Nerds uh, with your autobiographical title track about how not wild you were. And that was produced by Roy Halley, who had worked with Paul Simon and was a more kind of conventional, I would say, rock arrangement with drums, which I don't think there are drums on the first or third albums. What was the thought to sort of switch to that? And how do you guys feel about that? Well, we were signed with a big major label and our first record, while it got a lot of attention, the people in at Warner Brothers were baffled by why anybody would be listening to this, you know. So they then this began a, a sort of a career long effort by record company after record company to try to change the way we sounded. <laughs> and so that was the second record. <laughs> Although we had fun uh, making that record, but it was definitely a result of the record company saying, you've got to make a more commercial sounding record. So what that really means is conventional sounding, but we weren't conventional. So it was problematic. Were you guys kind of resisting it at the time? And were you unhappy with how it came out? Or did you sort of enjoy it and then look back and say, well, that's not really us as much as some of this other stuff? I think it was confusing and difficult to figure out what to do, you know, because it wasn't like we could make our own record at that particular point. You know, we weren't successful enough to have the right to do this, that, or the other thing. And um, I, I think we were just kind of trying to get by, you know, trying to keep going, trying to keep making music, trying to navigate our lives and 
you know, be on the road and, and all those things. So it's not even like I would blame the record company. I totally understand they're, they're paying for it. So, um, it's just that we weren't meant to be that kind of conventional band. I was driving with my younger daughter yesterday and I was playing roaches in the car and we, and, and I'm like, Oh, here's a funny song. And I put on the death of Suzzy Roach and she was really caught up in the narrative of it. She got to the end and she just goes, Jesus, because <laughs> she wasn't expecting it to, you know, really live up to it. What was it? What was the inspiration of that song? Well, that that's a perfect example of Terry and I, I had just done my laundry and I came home or came to the apartment. We were all hanging out at it with my bag of laundry. And I was talking about uh, how this woman in the, who, who works in the laundry hates me. <laughs> <laughs> and so we sat down and, and wrote that song. Did she hate you knowing who you were or did she just hate you? Cause you, you didn't, she didn't like how you sorted your socks or uh, something. Oh, I'm sure she did not have any idea who I was or care one bit. <laughs> no, it was more just like we were juxtaposing the two realities of our lives, you know, that basically, you know, a certain segment of people think that you're somebody. And then most people don't, you know, it, it's just the, it's kind of an interesting perspective, you know, because you right. run into a lot of famous people who think that they're, well, they're used to walking around and everybody's like, ah, all a flutter when they're around them. But that didn't happen totally to us. We're sort of halfway. Well, I, d I decided not to do the interview where I only ask you questions from we like, do you know anyone famous? What's your phone number? <laughs> Did they ever send you on the road with like a rock band or was it always the three of you with your guitars? Yeah, we never went on the road with a band. You know, it was expensive too. That's the other right. thing. Three people in a band, but we were a band. We were an acoustic band, which now doesn't even seem that strange because now there's a million bands like that. But when right. we were doing it, it was not what was happening. And it was also, um, you know, the punk thing was happening and the... Uh, electronic music came into it. But again, there was no internet, there was no YouTube, there was hardly any filming of the shows that we were doing. And we were known for our live shows, you know? Yeah, I was going to school in Philadelphia and I guess it was the spring of 83. And I saw you guys open for Randy Newman at the Tower Theater. And again, I couldn't go on YouTube beforehand and check out all the, the different songs, but Keep On Doing must have just come out. And I remember you came out and it was just, it was the three of you with your guitars and came out and opened with Losing True. And I just remember, I mean, I have a distinct memory. This is 40 years later, which I kind of can't believe, but it just taking my breath away. It just was so gorgeous. And I was like, wow. Well, you know, for us um, doing it, you know, it was, it was like um, galloping with three horses. Like I, you know, I, I, the shows to me were, again, I was always in the middle. And so it was like, we were just churning you know, we were very strong, you know, that was something to see, I think, which a lot of people, because there wasn't YouTube or this or that, they never saw. Yeah. Somehow I learned that you were going to be on soundstage and at WTTW in Chicago where I lived. And I, I think I even called there from Philadelphia saying, Hey, could I get tickets to this taping? And somehow they said, yes. Do you have memories of that taping or like was something like that more fun than being on a TV or talk show because this is like your own thing? Well, yes, I think it was better than being on, you know, one of those late night shows. But again, it doesn't have the feeling of being in a live theater, you know, where, you know, it's a it's a controlled environment. It doesn't sound the same. It doesn't, you know, when you when you're in a live show, you're you're there's something very special about that. So, yeah, it seems more tame to me when you're in a studio. You told this uh, story kind of deadpan about Reagan coming to have see you in a club. Um, <laughs> I wasn't sure whether the crowd was getting it or not. And then his people hung around afterwards and explained to you, well, he, he really wasn't a fan beforehand, but he wanted to use one of your songs as his campaign song. And this is the <laughs> song. And then he played Want Not, Want Not which I thought was very funny. It, it also just sort of reminded me of like the time of what it was like, you know, in those Reagan 
years. Is that sort of part of your spiel at that point or? Yeah, you know, um, there was a lot of spiels that went on and we, you know, we were funny. That's the other thing. We were very funny. The shows were funny, but and that also was confusing, I think, to people, you know, like how this is funny. But we were absolutely dead serious about the music. And we had a lot of different elements going on at the same time. So it was not a simple thing. And I think some people mistook it for like a joke, but it it had many layers, you know, if right. I do say so myself. <laughs> no, being funny is a way to cope with dark times. So that's the way I look at it, as opposed to ignoring the dark times. Yeah, well, I mean, everything strikes me as tragic and funny. You know, it, it seems like a, a pretty normal response to what's, what happens in life. You know, it's really both things at the same time when you were introducing uh keep on doing jerks on the loose you said something that you could say at a concert right now uh, you said we've got a song here a, a song of hope for the future just in case anybody doesn't feel very well these days and i feel like maybe things haven't changed as much as we think yeah well i mean i don't think anybody could have foreseen how weird it was going to get. <laughs> it certainly seems really strange right now to me, but maybe that's because I'm older and, you know, maybe younger people are like, okay, this is just what's happening, you know, but I no, it's really strange. <laughs> it's, it, it actually is. It really, really has gotten out of hand, everything. And I'm not sure what's going to happen. Nobody is, I guess, but it's confusing. But at the time, uh, again, 1983, you sort of had that, that feeling too of like, these are troubled times and music's going to help our help us get out of it. Well, I remember playing the night that Reagan was elected. You know, I remember where I was in Boston and it was the whole audience. Everything was just felt very dreary and bad. But now that seems like, ah, that was nothing. <laughs> He'd be a Democrat now. Yeah. yeah. What was your songwriting process like back then, by the way? You had songs you wrote on your own. You had songs that you collaborated with Terry. There were a few of them on um, Keep On Doing. I think you collaborated a bit with, with Maggie and then you did more later. But what was that process like? Well, uh, we were just... Um, throwing paint at the wall, you know, we were just constantly bubbling up with ideas and somebody would bring in something or, or, um, Terry and I actually did do a lot of, uh, collaborating. We would just sit there and write something and then bring it in. And, and we always, uh, worked out the arrangements together, you know, in very rare occasions, uh, would somebody come in with a complete harmonies done? And so I always think uh, a lot of the writing was about the arranging, you know, and again, that's very different um, from what a lot of people think. Um, although I know like the band is like that, their arrangements were very much part of the writing of the song, at least according to uh, Levon. I, I don't think Robbie Robertson <laughs> felt the same way. Right. When you would write with Terry, would you two say, let's have a writing session and you get into a room and you'd start coming up with stuff and then you'd come up with want not, want not, or uh, I fell in love, or was it more that you just kind of would be together and one of you would say, hey, I got this beginning of a song and then you just start messing with it? We would, you know, be sitting around just talking. We we did a lot of talking, all of us, and we would talk and talk and talk, and then it would kind of lead into something like that. We didn't really um, say we're going to write a song today. You know, we we would just we were again a lot of it was we were just it was just part of our every day, you know, and um, and also because we were touring, we we're always generating new material to play live. And um, that's why we had to rehearse so much. We would often rehearse. Uh, we we would get together to rehearse, and and they would the rehearsals would dissolve into what we would call horse balls, <laughs> rehearse balls. 
and which meant that the rehearsing would stop and we would just start, you know, complaining about things or talking about something that happened. And and often a song might come out of that. But we, we were on a regular schedule, like a regular job. We went to work every day, you know, because we had to, because you really had to be very, very well rehearsed in order right. to make do those arrangements. They were extremely complicated. So Another World came out, I think it was 85. So it's three years after Keep On Doing and had a lot more sort of electronic instruments on it. Was that you guys thinking, oh, we'd like to try sounding like something else and experiment with this? Or was this another one of these sort of record company, like you need to sound more modern and current and that sort of stuff? Yeah. Um, well, it was a combination. First of all, we we were into the electronic instruments because you could write differently on them. You know, you could use a certain amount of programmed music to and play live to it. And it would it was it was fun doing that for us. But the the another world was I, I think it was our last Warner Brothers record. They really came down hard on you have to try to make a commercial record. And they wanted us to work with Richard Goddard, who worked with the Go-Go's and they had the big hit with that. So, um, but that was a disaster. <laughs> he he was not interested in in what we were doing, and we, you know, it was it was ridiculous. And I think he he wound up getting fired from that, and we wound up finishing with somebody else. But it you doesn't know, sound like a Go Go's record. No, no, but we're not the Go Go's, you know. And True. I love the Go Go's, but uh, we were just it was just like again we were constantly being you know, taking something and trying to fit a round hole into a square peg kind of thing, or the opposite. <laughs> Did the three of you handle this kind of, I don't know, record company interference and pressure similarly, or did you kind of deal with it in different ways? Well, I think, again, my my role was to try to be mediator and, um, you know, compromiser. I, I often... Um, was a spokesperson for the group. I think my sisters were more rebellious than I was, even though I'm kind of rebellious too, but they, they, it was not easy. It was very, it was like constantly being told to be other than what you are. While our fans were wanted to see us, you know? Right. And so in between us and our fans, there was like a moat with these snapping crocodiles, you know, and so it it was frustrating. And and because there was, you know, not going to be a big, huge money-making breakthrough, you know, so that made it even more stressful. And, and also I, I had a baby. Um, I was raising a child by myself. I, it, it was, it was stressful. It was stressful to keep making a living, but we did. And we churned out an enormous amount of work. You know, it's just like, I look back on those days and think, how did we do it? You know, because we didn't even really have a manager or anything. Hmm. And then you had the album Speak, which a lot of people love as well. I mean, were you happier with that one? I love Speak and I love A Dove. Right. Um, I think those are among, uh, again, pointing out Maggie as a brilliant songwriter. I think those two records are among her most uh, wonderful work. And unfortunately, well, or fortunately, each each record has, has like a different bunch of fans, you know, and, and many of our earlier fans never have heard those records and they're amazing her writing it's just it's great and can we go home now that's another record that's right a beautiful record you know that song is sad yeah it's a heartbreaking yeah. song it is heartbreaking and 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 then the the winter coat song is on that record too and that she you know and not to diminish me or terry or anything like that but i i just marvel at the, the songs on those records yeah, on Speak, you guys made two videos as well. Was that fun? We did. Everyone is good. And then there's Nocturne, which was in Crossing Delancey. Right. Which was you uh, you know, exercising your acting chops. I rewatched that that movie in the last couple of years. We we did a thing at our 
synagogue where I was like running movie discussions like every week just to sort of keep people connected. And we did Crossing to Lancy and I was just like, oh, Sassy Roach is really good in this movie. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. That was fun. How did you get connected with Joan Michael and Silver and that project? Oh, well, um, the woman who wrote that movie, her name was Susan, I think. She wrote it to the, listening to uh, our music. And so she, when it came time to uh, do the music for the movie, she brought Joan down to the to a concert of ours. And then they asked me to come and read for one of the parts. So did you enjoy being on a set and, and doing that? And did you did it make you think, oh, maybe I should go back to this acting thing? Um, I was open to anything. I mean, one of the things, yeah, I've done a million different things. I, and he, I also have worked extensively with the Worcester group, and which is an avant-garde uh, theater right. group that has, you know, is world renowned. I've worked with them for, you know, 25 years. So I, I've done a lot of different things. And I actually feel bad that a lot of people don't do that. They don't get a chance to work in different kinds of artistic. I've, I've also written uh, three books, which, you know, they're all different versions of the same thing. You know, it's just like you're making things up, you're creating something. And so one feeds the other. And I think that's been something in my life that's been really enriching. It's being able to do a lot of different things. Your, your character, Marilyn Cohen in Crossing to Lance, you have this one great scene where Peter Rieger is figuring out that Amy Irving's jerking him around. I'll just use the actors' names because she's trying to fob off him on on your character, and and you finally are like, "All right, that's it. Look, this is what I'm about. You know, my friend, you're full of crap, and here's my number. And if you want to call me, but and it's this great little speech. I mean, it's this wonderful scene you have. Was that something that was totally scripted, or did you add to that at all? No, it was scripted. And uh, I remember it because uh, Steven Spielberg was in the room while we were filming it because he was married to Amy Irving. Right. And uh, that made her very nervous. But for me, I didn't, I, for some reason, that was not the least, that was the least of my problems. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And uh, afterwards, he came up to me and he said, Oh, you're a natural. And I, I never forgot that. I don't know what he meant, but um, it was fun. It was really fun. Did you get other casting you know, options or offers after that? I did. Many, many people saw that movie and were uh, interested in seeing me. <laughs> You'll get a kick out of this. Um, so I would get called to do casting calls. And the feedback I would get was that I was too New York. And the casting director would explain to me what that means is too Jewish. <laughs> of course, I'm not Jewish, but that was what the subtext was. You're like, it's acting. <laughs> well, I mean, have you heard my hallelujah chorus? I'm not Jewish. <laughs> I guess I, I am from New York. I would well, have to say that that's a very big part of my cultural interaction. Yeah, unfortunately, there are no movies that are shot or set in New York, so I could see why no one would ever want you to act again. <laughs> We're in the thick of summer, and it's time for Lemonade, Revolution Brewing's Freedom Lemonade. It's not a shandy. It's a lemonade beer made with cane sugar, lemons, and lightly tart ale in place of water. Grab the original Freedom Lemonade in six packs or the Freedom Lemonade Combo Pack which features six Freedom Lemonades and six Freedom Strawberry Lemonades. It's relatively low in alcohol and refreshing on its own or in a cocktail. Check out Revolution's social media for recipes. Go to at RevBrewChicago on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Can we go home now? At the time you did uh, Can We Go Home Now, did you just sort of feel like 
we just need to do other stuff or like what was the thinking between that being your last one at least for a while well our father died right after that and mm. uh, that was a huge devastating thing for me personally and as i said before a lot of my job in the group was kind of a cheerleading job and stuff and I kind of got broken by that, you know. And at the same time, um, our agent in England, who I was friendly with, said to me, you should make a solo record. And I was like, what? But then I, I realized that I was writing some songs, but they weren't the kind of songs that I would really bring in with the, the Roaches. I also had started working with the Worcester Group. And um, I was doing a lot of different things, you know. So I made a couple of solo records, actually not with the agent, uh, but with uh, um, Bob Feldman from Red House Records in Minneapolis, who was a dear friend of mine. Anyway, that was something that took up a, a lot of my attention during that period. And I can't, I think what happened with us was that the center could not hold, you know, that poem. Right. It's like we we had been so tightly wound and so tightly connected to each other. And something about when my father died, it just it broke apart. So that was that was a difficult that was a difficult time for sure. Did you like making Holy Smokes that first solo record? Again, I was so sad and so upset about my father. I mean, really, it was really, that was a huge part of that record. But it, interestingly, that record, I got so many letters from people who seemed to receive whatever the emotional tone of that record was, you know, very deeply. That was surprising to me. And I also felt out of place being a solo person. You know, and I didn't really have ambitions to have a big career as a solo person. You know, I already had so many years with my sisters and I wanted to keep writing and doing stuff. But I didn't. The focus being on me personally was painful. Mm. I, I really it's not my thing. I'm a collaborator. So how did you and Maggie end up uh, getting back together to do those two albums that you did, Zero Church and Why the Long Face? Well, Zero Church was really great because that was something, again, it was a collaboration. I had had this idea for years about, I just look out my window here and I would look at the people walking by and think, what if they were saying prayers as they were walking around and what would they be? What would those prayers be? You know, everybody's kind of personal relationship with whatever, you know, God or whatever you want to call it would be. And so I, somebody uh, called attention to me that there was this program at Harvard and I should apply for a grant to do the project. So I did and I was accepted. And then when I got up there, I was like, oh, God, Maggie would be so good at this. And so I convinced her to come up. And what we did was we collected prayers from people in this in this community in, in Cambridge, and we made songs out of them. And it, that was a really, really big change in my life in terms of creating, because I started to realize how important it was to comfort people with music, that I could make music like that. And I, I wanted to only make music like that from here on in, you know, and that pretty much has, has stuck with me. I'd read that that album was supposed to come out on September 11th, 2001, um, and then just ended up getting bumped to 2002. But it seems like such a such an album for that time that everyone was going through anyway, just in terms of connecting with people's prayers and hopes and you know, feeling community with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the whole idea of prayers and God and everything is a very divisive thing. And some people didn't even want to touch it with the 10 foot pole because because it's so polarizing in, in this society with 
But I wanted to separate religions from people's, perf- you know, it was interesting, frankly, to see what people would give. I had this uh, big apartment in Cambridge and I taped up all of these prayers that people were giving me on the the window. Every morning I would get up and just like, wow, I never would have thought of any of these things, you know. And um, I had to fight to get that record made because, um, you know, nobody, nobody wanted to make it. And then when it did get made, it really reached, a, a, you know, wide, far and wide across divides. It doesn't fall into any category. So but I, I'm very ha- happy that I made that record, that I had that opportunity with Maggie to do that. Yeah, no, it's a, it's just an album that exists on its own that you're not going to get that anywhere else. And it, and it really does have that spirit to it. What was it like working with Maggie again on that? And then also, uh, uh, why the long face? Well, Maggie, it was great. Maggie and I were very close. You know, she lived a couple of blocks away from me and it was a much less fraught situation than the roaches and we just took it slow and and it was just very easy and also i think it was very i think she really enjoyed it because she liked to make music and but she didn't do well in the more high-powered situations you know she couldn't take it she was too sensitive and in in that combination of just the two of us and it was kind of a smaller thing it it was just just right you know and then getting the roaches back together for one last album moonswept and then touring for that too was that a good experience yes it was a good experience but it was different you know we were older and the business had changed i, I remember at one point we had we were doing a gig in Texas and the people ripped us off and wouldn't pay. And and there were things like that were starting to happen. And it was clear to me that, you know, I think it's over here. You know, I think this is over. It's, uh, it's not the same, nor should it be the same. And, uh, let, let it, let it be, you know, how is the dynamic among the three of you? I mean, you've been working with Maggie and now you have Terry back in there. And it's kind of like when you come home from college a little bit and like, wait, I've been independent. No, now I'm back in the family. It was, I think it was fun. You know, again, like I was saying, I I think that Maggie and Terry could clash a lot, you know, and they both had different styles. Terry is much more, you know, fiery and, and Maggie was again, very sensitive and, and anything could rattle her. And they were constantly getting into scrapes. And um, I think I understand both points of view. It was the need for everybody to have their own lives. You know, I, I started to see that very clearly that it was time that that was a good thing for everybody. Right. And then Maggie had breast cancer and died in 2017. Um, yeah. And then your mother died like what, four months after that. So that sounds like, right. obviously, that's obviously another devastating period then. Well, for, for me, that that really marked the beginning of, oh, I get it. This whole thing is going to come to an end. <laughs> you know, not just <laughs> the music, but <laughs> life. You right. know, I mean, you start to get the hang of, you know, now I'm I'm almost 67 and you're, you're like, wow, <laughs> that's old. And, you know, of of these days, it's like, oh, no, that's not old, but it is old, you know, and you have to you start to lose friends. You start to lose people. My whole family just started to fall apart, you know, through death, you know, and um, and a friend, many friends have died. And um, but my daughter also had a baby. So now I'm a granny. And, you know, that that happens, too. And it's uh but you do start to kind of see yourself as further down the road of life. You know, I I don't know if I'll ever get over the death of Maggie, who I was with the, the whole time, you know, at the end. And, and then my mother 
it was a very, very devastating thing for my mother to have to deal with my sister dying. And, and then, <laughs> you know, she didn't last much longer. So right. she was 94 and Maggie was way too young, you know, and Maggie, Maggie had had cancer for five years and didn't tell anybody, you know, but she didn't have health insurance. Wow. Know? It was tragic. Maggie, like I said, I can't stress enough how she was just too sensitive for the world, you know. And, yeah, you, uh, you put that on your Facebook page. You said she was a private person, which certainly sounds like, and too sensitive and shy for this world. Yeah, yeah. She, she, and yet at the same time, she was so smart, so funny, and so kind and, and gentle. And but she, she was like a. It could be like a trapped. Why she had a wildness about her, and she was mm. trapped, you know. And I'm glad she didn't have to live through the pandemic, you know, because I think that would have pushed her over the edge. Do you, ter do you and Terry ever get together just to sing songs or anything? No, we don't. No, we don't. But we just were on the phone for an hour right before this. So when I really saw, oh, we all need to break up, break from each other. I try to stay away from Terry, frankly, now, because I like, she's got her own life. I've got my own life and we don't need to be together all the time. Like we, we had to be, you know? Right. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, it's perfectly cordial and everything like that, but it's just, we, we need to have our own space. How's it been singing with your daughter, Lucy? <laughs> another family person. I know, exactly. Um, that's really fun because me and Lucy, you know, Lucy grew up on the road. Uh, Lucy Wainwright Roach is her name. And uh, she and I have made actually three records together. Right. Kind of by accident, you know, she has her own career. She does her own shows. And so we just started to do it as kind of a fun thing. And, but then we just started going on the road and, and it's fun. It's fun. Again, it's much less, it's a totally different dynamic. We have a blast on the road. We get along very well. And I wouldn't say it's easy because being on the road is not easy, but it, it makes it more fun because there's the two of us or mostly we take her dog and now <laughs> the baby's involved. So we're taking the baby too. Right. Well, and she's got a lot of music in the family, too, on both sides now. That's right. The whole Wainwright situation. Like, I just was out in L.A. because uh, she was rehearsing with her brother Rufus on a tour. He just has a new record out, and she's in his traveling tour band. I went out to babysit <laughs> while she was nice. rehearsing. So you... the, whole, the whole gang is, you know, still all involved. Do you give her advice about the music business and does she ask you about it? I only gave her one piece of advice when she <laughs> when she first started. One piece of advice. I said, if you can possibly think of something else to do, <laughs> do it. <laughs> and uh, she she didn't listen to me. But I, I think her relationship to it is a, a lot different than mine was and and then many people's uh, she's she doesn't have the ambition she's not not a self-aggrandizing person but she's she is beloved by her fans and she has a beautiful voice and of course you know she definitely has a career so are you still writing songs and are you someone who writes songs when you just get inspiration or do you have to have some sort of project to make you sit down and do it I think projects and assignments are very good for me. I like to write on assignment. I'm just finished writing a bunch of songs for uh, the Worcester Group's new production that they're putting on. I like having assignments. It's kind of like that show Chopped. Have you ever seen that show? Oh, sure. They, yeah, yeah, yeah. They give you five ingredients. Yeah, you, yeah, you pull out the, the dried squid and the curry right. jello and stuff. Yeah. So that's kind of like what an assignment is. You you get given the parameters and you have to come up with something. I do. I also like to collaborate with people. I've done a lot of collaborating um, and I do still write songs. They come, you know, even though I'm not really sure what to do with them at this point. It's not like the world really needs another 
song from Suzy Roach, you know, let let the younger people have their their chance, you know. There's room um, for all of them. The world yeah. totally needs more songs by you if you want to write them, perform them. Yeah, well, they, they sort of have a mind of their own, you know, they they come and go. But I'm not the world is gotten so strange that I don't really know what I have to offer in terms of, you know, I'm an old white lady who, you know, has had a lot of chances to express herself. And I feel like I'm kind of at a loss. I'm speechless, <laughs> you know, because the world is is unrecognizable to me in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, making sense of a troubled, confusing world is one of the things we do through art, but sometimes even that is like, I don't know. Anytime I attempt to address the larger issues, <laughs> you know, I, I fail miserably. I I can only seem to work from the smallest little place. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I don't mean to say there's no value in that because there is. It's just, I feel I've gotten a little bit weary of being so exposed all my life. You know, mm. I I feel like I've given everything I have to my work on stage. I've done a million shows. I've written books. I've taught. I've sung. I've this and that. And I'm, if I only have a, you know, a last chapter left, I think I, I need to be careful about how much I just keep giving out. I need to make sure that I'm, I don't know, conscious, more conscious about it. Right. But can you envision a time in which you're not creating? Um, I think life is a creation. You know, I think everybody, my, my view of creation has changed because I start to see that everyone is creating their life and people are amazing what they do and what they're interested in and how they make a garden or how they paint a picture or, or you know, I, I don't really see that I'm, that there's a division between artists and people. You know, I think everyone has that in them. Right. You know? Thank you so much for talking with me. I mean, your music has really been an important part of my life for a long time. And then also to have the experiences of having heard you sing it live over multiple decades. So, so thank you so much and keep on doing. Yeah. Well, this has been a real uh, enjoyable conversation. Thanks for having me. That's it for episode 90 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Suzy Roach for making and talking about the wonderful music she has made over the years. You can learn more about the Roaches on their website, roaches.com. They spell their last name R-O-C-H-E. If you haven't immersed yourself in their music yet, start with a 1979 debut, The Roaches, and go from there. You could stream it or buy it. Also, that 1983 soundstage performance is on YouTube, so check it out. And listen to Suzy's solo work and her albums with her sister Maggie and daughter Lucy. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swate. I would never put a turd in his mailbox. I'm Mark Carol. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter at Carol Popcast. You can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, where you can find this podcast and enter your email so you'll hear about upcoming episodes and events. Tickets are on sale now for my July 31st onstage Carol Pop conversation with actor-singer-director Michael Shannon at the Club Space in Evanston, Illinois. Go to evanstonspace.com for more information and to buy tickets. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.